We're going to be looking at Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 through the end of chapter 2. So if you could find that, I'll be reading from there. We want to thank Pastor Andy and Pastor Joel for letting me preach here this morning. It's a privilege and a challenge to bring God's Word. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12. And again, I'll be reading through the end of of chapter 2. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look on wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and I will answer concerning my complaint. The Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffings and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the, man, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To set his nest on high. To be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame from your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, 
Is it not for the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing awake, to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The word of the Lord. If you've been listening to the news over the past week, you've probably heard of a group called ISIS, perhaps, and their reign of terror on Christians especially, throwing them out of countries like Iraq and Syria, persecuting them and killing them. And as you've heard about them, or maybe you've heard about China and how they too have begun to twist Christianity and intensify their persecution, they've decided to come out with their own brand of Christianity, a communist brand. And they even wrote a newspaper article about it, letting everyone know. This kind of persecution is coming against the church. Or maybe you heard of Robin Williams and his death and how he suffered so badly from depression and how our best guess is is that that is eventually what drove him to kill himself. Now, in all of these situations, we see a very difficult question coming up. First, what is the church supposed to do when so many bad and evil things are coming against it? And also, what are we as individuals supposed to do when these things mount up against us, when we are persecuted, when things come before us that we are overwhelmed by, when... Our lives are too much for us when we go to work and are unable to deal with our co-workers where there's that tension continually there and you are afraid you'll offend the wrong person or make the wrong person mad or do anything that, that would put you in the sight of your boss because your boss is just looking for some way to gain advantage over you and to ruin your life that day. Or maybe it's in your family where your marriage has broken down and you don't know how you've gotten to this place after so long. Things seem to be going well and all of a sudden this has come up. Your situation with your spouse is now 
almost completely severed. It's like living in the house with a perfect stranger after so long. Or perhaps it's with your children, that your children are almost becoming unknown to you, that they're growing up in a different world than you did. They're confronted with things that you couldn't even imagine when you were a child. And as they're confronted with these things, you don't even know how to begin to help them with them. Instead, you stand there before God and say, What now? What do I do? How could I even manage all of this? This is too much for me, O Lord. Give me help. Give me something, anything, rather than this. It's easy to see how someone could easily be pushed to the edge and need to commit or want to commit suicide because this this world is evil and it is almost impossible to deal with it. We're going to look today at Habakkuk and our look is going to be brief at these basically chapter and a half because of just the amount of material there had to boil it down, but I think it will be of much benefit to you. We're going to look at three verses. So I'll tell you what those three verses are and basically what I'm going to talk about and then we'll kind of walk through them and kind of pin all of our thoughts on how do we deal with the evil in the world and the tremendous burden on ourselves that's that's given and apparently we find no relief from. So first we're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. And we'll be looking there at the prideful and the righteous. This is who we are, our being. And then we're going to move on and look at chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. And we'll see the ending This is the fire and the glory. And then the third verse we'll look at is chapter 2, verse 20. And in there we'll look at the Lord and the silence. And that will be our standing The first one, chapter 2, verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. As Trevor was talking about last Sunday, this is the perplexed prophet, and he is trying to deal with the immensity of life, the, the evil that's being done to believers. And he's trying to figure out why and how a holy God can do this. And one of the first things that God does for Habakkuk is not answer all his questions about why and how and what and give him a very detailed plan of what's going on. We shouldn't expect that either. But what he does do is say there are two groups here. Look carefully. There are the prideful and the righteous. And he tells us about them. This is 
who these people are, their, their very identity, what makes them them. One group is prideful, puffed up, upright. They look only to themselves for what is right. They, in order to find out what is good in this world, in order to find out how to deal with their problems, they, they try to find out what makes the best time for them, what gives them the most things in this life. How can they find the most pleasure? They are centered on themselves. They are prideful. They are not upright. They are puffed up. They think that they know the answers, that they are the end, that they are the authority. And then we have the righteous. Now, the righteous here are the righteous in two ways. First, the righteous have been made righteous by God, by their faith. And they continue to live on in righteousness by faith. So that's who they are. And this happens because this God forms the one into the other. He is creating a new creature, as Paul calls it. And in every case, the prideful can be made into the righteous because he is righteous by faith. Righteous because he believes something about God. And those things that he believe, uh, believes are about God. They're not things that are just in faith alone. Having faith in faith doesn't get you anywhere. But the righteous live by his faith his faith in God and His promises. The Apostle Paul is a good example of this. If you remember in Acts 9, Paul has been persecuting the church for a while. He has worked hard. He is the the prideful, the, the one who thinks that it all ends with him. He is working to make himself great as a Pharisee. He wants all the other people and Pharisees to look to him. He thinks he's glorifying God by persecuting the church, by making those who believe in Jesus Christ their lives miserable. He's sending them to jail. He's participating in sentencing them to kill them. He blames himself later for their actual deaths. But he's made new. He's made new by an encounter with Jesus Christ and Christ changes him, makes him into a new creature so that now he is a righteous by faith. Not because he's done anything, of course, but because Christ has encountered him and Christ has shown him that Christ and Christ alone is able to save people, not without their, without their works, without anything that they've done. Christ saves them wholly and fully. So he is a good illustration of both of these things before he was prideful and arrogant and lifted up himself. And after he is made a new creature, just like all believers are, and they are a new creature in Christ, believing and righteous before God, right before God, because of what Christ has done. So how do we apply this first part to our lives? It's basically looking at yourself. Where are you? What is your relationship? 
some of you are saved. Some of you have experienced this change in your very nature. That now you desire Christ. That every day, though some days you feel distant from Him, you want to feel close to Him. Or you feel close to Him and that excites you. And that gives you a joy that carries you through that day. But in every case, that new creature, you are ready to serve. You are eager to know more about Christ. You long to know Jesus. But if that is not your story, then you have not yet been changed. And what you need to look at yourself and see is that your motives, the reasons you do things are because of pride. Because you think that you're the end of all things. That you get to make the decisions for your life. That the only one you need to please is yourself. And that's not the way God has created this world. God has created this world because you are for Him. And only by serving Him in right relationship with Him are you able to please Him. Outside of that... You are still in your pride. You are still distant from God and unable to fellowship with Him. But don't be too easy on yourself if you think you are a believer too. Remember that Paul says, examine yourselves. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So don't let yourself off easy thinking, oh, well, that, do- that part doesn't apply to me. Maybe it's time for you to examine yourself and see whether you are in the faith. And doing that in ways we have talked about and in ways we will talk about here soon. As we move from the prideful and the righteous to our next point, we have the fire and the glory in chapter 2, 13 and 14. The fire and the glory is our ending. The verses read like this, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So first we look at those who are prideful. What is their end? Are they ending in the fire or the glory? And God clearly says here to Habakkuk, they end in the fire. He's given five things, five woes, five judgments in this part between these two verses in this last chapter this chapter 2 that we're looking at he gives five woes or judgments to those who are prideful who are arrogant who are lifted up in themselves and have only their own interests in mind I'll briefly run through the five and help you Look at your life. If you suspect yourself of being prideful, of 
that being what characterizes your life and your nature, then listen to these five. Look at your life. What is God telling you about your life right now? Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own and loads himself with pledges. How are you manipulating those in your life? See, the Babylonians had a way of using people. They would do everything in their power to manipulate people, to harm people for their own fun and enjoyment. They would... They were good and expert fishermen. They would take hooks that Habakkuk mentions in the previous chapter. They would take hooks and and put them through the lips of those they'd conquered and then string them together and parade them off to where they were relocating them. They would remove them from their home and do it like this. Or they would take giant nets and capture people in these nets and then drag them to wherever their new home would be. These people were enjoying their conquest, enjoying themselves by making others miserable. They they had no account for others' comfort or enjoyment or their lives. They would use these people for themselves. So what are we using each other for? This is what distinguishes the prideful. They abuse other people. It can be subtle. It can be how you treat your children and get them to act the way you want them to. It can be how at work you buy those things that appease other people because you know that if you bring the donuts, then you can get Walter to do just about anything that day. Or what ways are you twisting your relationship with your boss? Not that these ways are wrong, but it's what you're trying to get out of them. How are you working, maybe even in this very church, to make this group think one thing and that group think another so that you can step in and seem to save the day? Or you can mediate between the two and increase your own value. Maybe you're using your marriage in order for sexual pleasure and Though you should take your wife out on dates and that is good and gracious thing to do, maybe that's not your real purpose. Your real purpose is to try to figure out how you can do just enough so that you get what you want out of her. Or it's twisted and the woman is trying to do the same thing. That she knows that if she acts a certain way, if she wears a certain thing, it will be easier for her to spend more money than she ought to. What areas in your life are you manipulating the people around you because you're the center of your universe? That you're the focus of all your days? All of these five things... Habakkuk goes on to show they are all rooted in the same pride. 
the next group in verse 9 are use, looking to use their evil gain then to secure themselves. They think they can find a way out of judgment. Maybe it is making something that you are able and you know that even if you don't work as hard as everyone else at your job, all that you have to do is make sure that you do the certain things that your boss notices. And then you can, you can use your, your evil gain in order to secure your position at work. Or maybe you're doing those things with those that are down at the gas station here. Maybe you are using your influence to seem more generous than you really are because you know that if you seem generous to the people that work there, then you are more likely to let, uh, that they'll let things slide when you want to get more than you paid for. And they know about it. But you're the kind one. You're the nice one. You're the one that it doesn't matter if you paid all the money that you owed. They'll figure out a way to, to fix their cash register. A, a woman offered me uh, the very thing last night as I went to go get a drink so I could stay up longer and work on my sermon. Uh, and, and I thought, I wonder how many people come through this and they they appear to this woman uh, or they use this woman to get more than they deserve because they know that they can manipulate her but they can preserve their own security because they'll, they know that they won't get caught for it because she'll let them get away with it. I mentioned ISIS earlier. And in that verse 12, those who build towns on blood and found cities on iniquity. If you're building a government based on oppressing people and murdering people, then these, these are the things. Not you personally. I don't know anyone here right now that's creating a government. But these things are, are the same, same things. There is a judgment there for ISIS that is coming and is inevitable unless they repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And all of their, their works, all of those things, even those people who seem to have found their purpose in life by giving. You know, Bill Gates recently gave who knows how much money, right, to the to the ice bucket challenge and he designed they made a, basically a commercial about it that he designed this thing so that he could pour water on himself and challenge other people to give to ALS now this makes him look great and that it seems to me at least is what he wants to do is make himself look great make others that he has challenged look great i don't know him personally so i i don't i don't know i can't see his heart but is he using his giving to build himself up and more importantly are any of you are any of us using our giving our generosity the the things that we have in order to make ourselves look better 
If so, those things come to nothing. We, if left in our pride, are for the fire, for that eternal fire Jesus talks about over and over again in hell, where there is nothing to quench our thirst. And the nations, it says in the last part of 13, weary themselves for nothing. All of those things that we hope are making the world better. If we're not doing them for the right reasons, they're coming to nothing. It is if we have never done them at all and have never lived in the end. That God will come and He, verse 14, will fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's where believers, that's where our hope comes in. That what we do in hopes of glorifying God, those things will last. Those things will be here. Those things will extend beyond us. And the glory of the Lord will one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. How thoroughly do the waters cover the sea? Everything will be the glory of God. And we will rejoice in it and exalt in it and praise God for letting us participate in any small way we could that He has let us by His grace and mercy, glorify Him in our lives. So we look at six things then that will help us as believers as we seek to do things for God's glory. We have six things that I'll try to quickly list here that as we work for God's glory, it helps us to deal with those difficult and impossible times. Those times when we're overwhelmed, when there's too much for us, when there's too much coming at us. Notice how Habakkuk does it. He's a great example of how to do this well, how to approach God well when these things come upon us and burden us. First, you'll notice in verse 12 of chapter 1, we're just going to start there and quickly go down the verses from there. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? First, he goes to God. He doesn't go to his best friend. He doesn't go even to his pastor. He doesn't go to his refrigerator. He doesn't go to his drug dealer. He doesn't go and try to find relief outside of God. Instead, he goes to God. My God, my Holy One, are you not from everlasting? He reminds himself who God is, is our second thing. He goes to God and he looks to who God is. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He has been before everything was, and He will be into eternity and forever. There's no one who has any control over Him because He was there before them. There's no one that has anything on Him that can manipulate Him because He is greater than they are, because He created everything. So He is greater than all His creation. He, oh, Habakkuk reminds himself of who God is 
and he reminds himself that God has ordained judgment. He is the rock that establishes him. All of these things are revealed in the Bible and Habakkuk knows his Bible well. So he remembers these things. He reminds himself of who God is. And then at the end of that chapter, verse 17, Habakkuk says, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, I will take my stand at what my watch post and, my, and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. As he stands there waiting, he is waiting. He's being patient. He has come before the Lord and remembers who he is. He's taken that step back to remember. And then he waits. And he waits with an attitude of seeing how the Lord will rebuke him. I look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Or another way of reading this is that he has what rebuke I will get and what answer I will make to the rebuke. So he knows that God is going to come back and humble him humble Habakkuk and he's ready for that he knows that he's not thinking straight when he accuses God of making people like fish and letting them be taken away in their nets he knows that he has gone to the limits if anything of talking to God of coming to God with complaint and he knows that he's going to be rebuked but he's ready and he's ready to make an answer concerning how the Lord rebukes him. And then in, chap- in verse 2 of chapter 2, the Lord did answer him. How gracious the Lord is. Write the vision. Make it plain. Habakkuk turns, and in his case, he writes. In our case, we read. All the writings have been set down for us. The prophet and apostles have made their writings clear. So when we come to difficult times, when we are tried beyond our resources, we open the Word of God. We open our Bibles and look to see what He has said. Not that He'll spell out, this is the best way that you need to take care of your car because it has gave, given you so much trouble that there's there's no way left to finance it, but you need it for work and you're caught in this catch-22. There's no mechanics manual in here, right? He's not. I'm not saying that we should open the Bible in order to find that, but we can open the Bible and remember that the Lord is the one who provides all of our needs, that through Jesus Christ, 
we are equipped with a church who helps and loves us and is able to come alongside us. We might have to humble ourselves to ask, but God is good and provided. And sometimes we just need to open God's word to be reminded of how much and how generously and graciously he has provided for us. We continue that we are patient before him in verse 3 of chapter 2. For still the vision awaits the appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems to be slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. We patiently wait for God to act. As Trevor was saying last week, God is acting He is doing something, and we should not be ignorant of that. And in every case, we will either in this life or the next find out what what activity he was giving us, how he was building us in the likeness of Christ, how he was moving us through those times of difficulty, how we are better because we suffered in those ways. But we must be patient for them. Must not get frustrated and demand or abandon what we have believed. (coughs) Finally, we look to the glory of the Lord at the end. Verse 14, that glory that covers the sea. That's the way that we as believers are supposed to look to God, that when these things come and tempt to overwhelm us or do overwhelm us, then we look to the glory of the Lord. This is what is coming. God will set down things as they should be. He will make right the wrongs and he will lift up the broken and he will make us part and enjoyers of that glory. And that is the way we'll spend the rest of eternity, is enjoying the glory of the Lord and seeing what it means for the waters to cover the sea, for that glory to be in and through and above and below and around everything that we have and have done and will see and will experience and learn as we enjoy our Lord. Habakkuk is one illustration, but a second is Israel. If you remember when Moses was walking Israel out of the promised land, they came to the Red Sea and they were in a position where they couldn't get through the Red Sea. They were blocked from behind because Pharaoh was coming and they thought for sure that they were going to die. They had no resources, no weapons, no training for how to fight, no abilities, no way to go, no boats to go over the sea, nothing. They were in a position much like we are when we are overwhelmed, when The world has become too much for us when the evil is upon us and we cry out to God. And what does Moses tell the people? He tells them, stand right there and see the salvation of the Lord, 
And that's what we do. That's what Habakkuk has done. He's stepped back and he's looked to the Lord. He's looked to see what is the character of the Lord. How might I be encouraged? How may I be patient and wait for Him? Wait for Him to act? How can I see that He is going to rebuke me, but it will be good? It will be filling to know Him better, to have a deeper understanding of who He is and how He has loved me through this difficult time. I will stand here and look to the Lord and await His salvation. And as we do that, when the Lord opens that way, when He parts the waters, then we walk through. We live by faith. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has acted and made that way. We now live by faith and walk through it. And now... We find ourselves at the last verse we'll be looking at. The Lord and the silence. This is where we'll all find ourselves standing. Chapter 2, verse 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. The Lord, there Yahweh, is the covenant name of God. It is the God. It is the name that God gave to tell His people that He is bound to them, that He is with them, that He will not forsake them. And so everyone comes before this God, who has made a covenant and covenanted with some of those people that come before Him. He is in His holy temple because He is holy. He has never done anything wrong. He will never do anything wrong. He is perfect and above reproach, above doubt. And we look to Him as holy. We look to Him as the Lord, the covenant Lord. And He is in His temple, both a place of worship and a place that throughout the Old Testament is a place that God ruled the earth from. So, this is the Lord that in that second part, we all come before Him. Let all the earth, all of the earth, both the prideful and those who are righteous by faith, let all the earth come before the Lord. And as we stand there before the Lord, we keep silence. We continue on in silence expecting His judgment. All has been finished at the end of the age and we stand before the Lord in His holy temple and we are silent. We are made silent. All our complaints, all our questions are ended. We are silent before Him. And as we all stand there before Him, we await to see how He will judge. This is the same understanding that Jesus gives us later in Matthew 25 when He has the sheep and the goats. 
and he puts us there to help us understand where we are before God. If all of the earth is standing there, God will judge in two different ways. Even as we started out saying, there are those who are still going to be in their pride, who are still going to be arrogant, who despite all the warnings and all the grace that God has given them throughout their lives, they're going to remain in their sin. And such are some of you today that don't understand that there is no salvation, there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. And He will say, away with you. He will send you to the place of torment, to the place of fire that we talked about, to the place where you know that everything that you've done throughout history, throughout your entire life, that you thought was making the world better, has come to nothing. Now, you're going to be in hell forever. You're going to suffer. You're going to be tormented and every little thing that you have ever done to others, to yourself, and against God is going to be punished on you. And you will be silent. Because that is the end. But there are those here who are hopeful, who are looking forward to that day even when things are made right, when we know that we never had the strength to take what God has given to us, that we were upheld every moment by the pure and beautiful grace of God through His Holy Spirit that gave us power to put one foot in front of the other day after day, trial after trial, persecution and oppression after one another. And we'll be delighted. This will be the silence before the eternal praise that we will get to sing. We will get to glorify God and enjoy Him and celebrate Him and tell each other about Him. This will be a time of joy and delight, a time where we are seeing one another beautiful in the way that we should have been apart from sin but now have the opportunity to be and to minister to each other and to show each other the many aspects and ways that God has worked in our lives and made His glory as the waters cover the sea. And there is still opportunity for those of you who think right now that you will be silent because you are about to enter hell. There is still opportunity now to enjoy Christ forever, to celebrate Him forever. And that opportunity comes through Jesus Christ, through giving up all your ways, all your advantages, all the things that you think you could do or accomplish or make or have, and to put all of your confidence in Christ, to say, 
You have made the way of salvation. You have secured it. And I want to be brought there. But I can do nothing. Please bring me. And He will. Because He is a gracious and good God. One final thing. Because I felt I, I kind of had to step into... Andy's sermon next week, Pastor Andy will be preaching on Habakkuk 3, and there are some, there, chapter 3 finishes so nicely that I might not do much more than just read it, starting in 17 and reading 18 as well. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That glory that we will be participating in, that silence or that praise after the silence, let it start now. Rejoice in the Lord now. Take joy in the God of your salvation. Take that joy and enjoy it. Rejoice in it. And as you do so, go run. In chapter 2, verse 3, God has him write the vision so that he may, he may run who reads it. Run and tell other people. Run and tell them that there is a joy, there is a peace, there is a way to be right with God and to never suffer as for your sins. To never suffer death, but to pass through death and to enter life eternal full of joy and grace, peace, beauty, and love. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that You have given Your Word to show us who we are and what is coming. Today we pray that in some who are filled with pride, that Your Holy Spirit has worked to humble them, And change their heart to see that they need Christ. That without Him, there will be no joy. All their efforts will be nothing. And they haven't even begun to understand suffering. But we also pray that Your Holy Spirit has worked in salvation to change hearts to see that Christ is the deliverer, that Christ is the giver of joy, that we might rejoice and take up that joy, celebrate our salvation and run to tell others. Lord, give us 
grace to remember these things throughout this week. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.